for long-term sustainability or athletic resilience, right? Or athletic sustainability, you know, everyone's kind of talking about. That is all about improving the efficiency of movement, which means the internal muscular effort, the input necessary to execute a movement is less. And the less internal effort you're applying, the less load is going through those tissues. If you improve the efficiency of the movement, you decrease the load on the body substantially. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Hey guys, Dr. Emily Kybert here with Muscle Medicine Podcast. Today we sit down with Dr. Richard Alm, a friend, a mentor, and a teacher in dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. Many people think of chiropractors as simply backcrackers, but that could not be further from the truth. Dr. Richard Olm is a perfect case in point as he fuses chiropractic, the performance industry, specifically weight training, and dynamic neuromuscular stabilization, which is a technique taking how we learn to move as babies and taking those principles into a rehab setting as adults. So in this episode, we talk about how DNS relates to all aspects of movement, the importance of learning and developing those movement patterns when we're babies, and the difference between moving efficiently and effectively. Uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear this episode. Dr. Richard Ohm is such a wealth of information. If you feel like muscle medicine is adding value, go to iTunes, Stitcher, subscribe, rate and review, and let us know what you think about this episode. So Rich, you have this really unique background of being a collegiate track star on a national level. Air quotes around star, please. <laughs> a chiropractor, which sometimes chiropractors get a bad rap, just rack them and crack them, which I know you don't do and I don't do because you have this great background in strength training. How has this background of being an athlete and being a strength coach influenced your practice? Well, I mean, I didn't really know what traditional chiropractic was in the beginning. It's it maybe a little bit sad, but I, I was a strength coach and I was working with a chiropractor and he suggested that, uh, we wanted to move back to the Midwest and he suggested that I become a chiropractor. And I was like, don't they just like crack backs and stuff? And I had never really been to one. I've been to like one guy one time and it was just to walk in, get your neck cracked and then go home, which I thought was as an athlete, I just didn't think that was all that helpful. But then I shadowed this guy and he does a lot of ART and a little bit of rehab and, you know, joint manipulation. And so I was just kind of interested in it, but it, the strength training and the performance background, I would say completely shaped my perspective before I got into school. So before I even knew I wanted to become a chiropractor, I was interested in basically functional assessment. Now this is prior to that being popular. This is prior to social media and the internet. So there's no like Gray Cook doing this. There was no, I mean, you just couldn't, there weren't seminars on this stuff. And I had this just interest in getting the body to work as optimally as possible. 
And so when I went, when I decided to go into school to become a chiropractor, I went into it with the idea that, well, of course, I'm going to look at the whole body. And of course, I'm going to look for where they're stabilizing well and, and where they're moving well and where they're limited in those things. And yeah, of course, I'm going to treat an ankle if it's a low back pain thing. And that when I got to school was a little bit sort of uh, against the grain because, you know, I'm sitting in a class in the first trimester and they said, that, uh, you know, about mixers and straights, which, you know, is a straight for everyone that does not know is uh, a chiropractor that does like traditional chiropractic, you know, mainly manipulation. And a mixer is going to be someone that does kind of what you and I do, which is more, you know, soft tissue and rehab and stuff. And I raised my hand and said, what's a straight? And the whole class like turned and looked at me like, you didn't know that? Because almost, yeah, almost pretty much because almost everybody that goes into chiropractic, the vast majority of them had an event, right? They had like chiropractic saved my back or, or whatever. I didn't have that. I just saw it as a really neat way to be able to treat patients and, and optimize performance, whether that was, you know, picking up a bag of sand or, or throwing a baseball hundred miles an hour. I was just really interested in the manual part. So before I even got into chiropractic, the strength training and the, the performance aspect of it just completely shaped what I want to do or, or how I think you can optimize the body. And it was through functional testing and exercise and a lot of manual therapy and neurology and all that stuff. And chiropractic, when I got to school, I just sort of bent my education around what my vision was. And I would say that my vision has not changed at all. I've just been able to sort of bring it into focus and understand. And I've been able to fill in gaps that I had, you know, the DNS stuff obviously filled in a big gap with rehab and then, you know, active release technique I use as an athlete, but I obviously did those and just other manual techniques and adjusting. And of course, uh, motion palpation Institute blends all those things really well. So the sports stuff just put me in that direction. Um, and then I just kind of filled in the gaps after that. So it's been fun. So what does your practice look like? I know on Instagram, I see some squat racks, which you don't normally see in a chiropractic office. But <laughs> and then what does your, what does your treatment look like? You, you mentioned some techniques, but I'm really curious on like a nuanced level what it looks like. I mean, from a very macroscopic level that people are coming in, I of course have to make fun of them or something and just hang out and get to know them a little bit. But I'm really just trying to see, you know, globally, how do they move? Do they move, you know, just overall well? You know, I can put them into a bucket. Is it a mobility or stability problem right off the bat? And then you, of course, have to go through and just kind of isolate. And so then regardless of whether it's a neck complaint or plantar fasciitis or, you know, carpal tunnel, I have to just kind of do some movement assessment stuff. And then, of course, a lot of sort of tissue palpation. I think that I, I, as you've heard me say maybe a million times, I get more out of tissue palpation than I do observation of movement. So trigger point assessment. I use a lot of passive range of motion stuff uh, to basically just come up with an assessment of like, where do I think the problem is? What is the body telling me? And then from there, I'm going to go in and try to sort of triage this as, all right, I need to go after this area first. And then that should clean up this area. And just if you prioritize it well and you do a good exam, you're usually able to get faster results than just coming in and going after, you know, wherever the pain is, you know, on my knees bothering me. So instead of just doing a bunch of soft tissue stuff on the knee, you might look and say, oh, well, is that a trunk stability issue? Is that a hip problem? Is that an ankle problem? 
you know, what's going on to fix that area. It's a ton of fun. So yeah, I love differentiating. Is it a mobility issue? Is it a stability issue? And I think of that story that you told in a DNS seminar. I think it was, was it Levitt who was watching someone walk? <laughs> Go ahead. That, was that Carl? Or was that someone else? So the, I've heard this story from multiple people. Do you mean he had the guy come up from on stage to do a gate evaluation? So there's, one of the stories I tell about a gate is Yanda speaking and he calls somebody out of the crowd just to do a gate evaluation. And the, as the guy's coming up, Yanda continues to like face the crowd and, and discuss whatever he was talking about. And the guy gets up on the stage and the guy, and Yanda says, how did you tear your, your medial meniscus on the right knee? And the guy looked at him and was like, how the F did you know? That? <laughs> you know, like, so that, that kind of a brilliant, just sort of observation skills is obviously something that I've always aspired to. The more I'm around the Prague school, the more you get to see really how high the bar is. And so that's kind of the the standard I'm chasing, the Peloton I'm sort of chasing. But a, a really good buddy of mine, uh, you've actually met him, uh, Jason Placeway. He's a DNS certified guy down in Cincinnati. And it was funny because legitimately when I was in school, I mean, the goal was to be the, the best therapist in the world. And then you meet Collage and he's like, yeah, he goes, at that point, you're just like, I just don't want to suck. Like, you know, <laughs> you're not going to catch him. So I'm just going to try to not suck. That's now the goal. <laughs> Well, you, I mean, you travel all over the world teaching for DNS. Do you want to give our listeners like a little taste of what it is? Simply, I would say DNS is, is the most comprehensive explanation of movement and function. It is really this, this brilliantly detailed uh, description of how we move and stabilize in space that in, incorporates sensory motor integration and neurology and all these amazing things. It, it typically gets pigeonholed as, oh, they do the baby exercise stuff. And that's, of course, a huge component of it. But it's really we're using, you know, the, the normal child as the ideal model for movement. And then we're using developmental positions to restore that. But the thing that always blew my mind about DNS was really more its appreciation for the complexity of movement and not just looking at it like a mechanical machine that I think most systems do. They'll say, oh, yeah, this is this is tight because your hamstring goes here and it does this and blah, blah, blah. When in reality, your calf might be tight because your lumbar spine is unstable. And there's no real fascial connection between those two. It's more neurological. And DNS, more than any system I've ever seen, digs into that. And really, really gives the participants an appreciation of that. The developmental stuff, for those of you out there who have not seen DNS, Pavel Collage is a physiotherapist from the Czech Republic who has a PhD in uh, pediatrics. And so he's very, very knowledgeable about developmental positions and, and treating uh, children. And he's basically taken that knowledge and then created this comprehensive system of assessment and treatment to restore movement. And we use a lot of the developmental positions and sequences to assess patients. And then also we can use those same movements and positions to, to, to restore proper function. So the baby stuff, I, I think, is an important component of it. But I think the, the really powerful thing about it is flipping the paradigm from a patho-anatomical one to a neurological one. That was probably more 
what I get out of DNS than the typical person, I think. That our movement patterns are learned on a neurological nervous system level. Yeah. So there, there is, of course, that component of it where you realize that this, this athlete's winging scapula is really coming from potentially, you know, development, right? Early on, you know, six months when we're learning how to roll from our back to our belly or four and a half months when we're supposed to be able to support in our elbows and upright our cervical spine or nine months we're supposed to be able to sort of reach up overhead with abduction, external rotation. These are all positions and movements that train proper scapular stabilization. And if you don't go through those, and there's lots of reasons, it could be injury or nociception, or you know the brain just might not really go through the sequence for whatever reason, or maybe the, the mom is, and the, the, the father aren't giving the baby enough tummy time, but whatever the case may be, if you do not activate those muscles and those patterns at that time, it becomes very, very stubborn to fix those. And the more that I'm in practice, the more that I'm seeing that stubbornness express itself. You know, you can give exercises, you can do these great treatments, you can use DNS and reflex stimulation and any other like common exercises out there. But the moment they stop doing it, I feel like it regresses very quickly if it really is a developmental problem. And I asked Collage about this one time, and he said that once you sort of learn to move a certain way, any change in that pattern is almost like learning a second language. And if you think about it, Emily, like if you went to, to Germany and you learned German and you didn't speak English for two years, it would probably take you minutes to get your English back. Whereas if you stopped speaking German for two years, it would be virtually gone. And a lot of times the movement patterns that we're trying to train are so, so stubborn and resistant to change or they degrade quickly because of the neurology there. So that's, a, that's one of the neurological components. The other one is really the, the detailed appreciation of sensory motor integration. And at the course that you and I took here in Columbus, I don't know if Robert said it there. Yeah, I think he might have said it there, where the therapy, the system is now more of an afferent system. Like we're not as concerned with changing the output. We're more concerned with changing the input. And the neurology that, I, that I've learned from these guys was when you have nociception or you just don't have proper sensation coming from an area, the brain's ability to control that area is compromised. And the problem is not in the output. The problem is the lack of input. And that was like, that has been a big, big, big realization that without DNS, I probably wouldn't have had. And so in the if you think about it, I mean, you know, Emily, you've dug into a lot of things. And the only explanation for why you can show someone a four and a half month prone cervical uprighting exercise and within 60 seconds, their shoulder moves better, is that you're improving the afers. You're giving them the correct sensation for that area, and the brain then adopts that and uses it. Which It's obviously not that we're waiting for the muscles of the serratus anterior to hypertrophy or to increase the, the cross-sectional diameter of the muscle or the tensile strength of the, the fascial system. It's that the brain becomes better at utilizing and controlling those muscles and those movements. And so that's been like a huge paradigm shift for me. Why are more pediatricians taking DNS? 
you're saying it starts at such a young age if you're not allowing the child to challenge itself or stay in a certain time. Like I just, I have a funny story for you. I got an Instagram fight because this woman was like, you're telling me my five and a half month old, if he wants to stand, I shouldn't let him do that. And I was kind of like, yeah, you shouldn't. Yeah. yeah. You know, which is like my pediatrician says he's developing fine. And I was like, okay. That that becomes a pretty difficult situation because I I treat a lot of, of, of babies in the clinic and it really becomes difficult when I, I feel like it is pathological. And so I, it's not, it's inside my scope, what I'm doing, right. I'm, I'm just doing rehab stuff. I'm not doing anything invasive or whatever, but I want to make sure that I have a good relationship with the pediatrician so that they will sort of allow, allow this to happen and trust me and be on board with this. But what I, happens what, often. What do you mean when you say it becomes pathological at such a young age? Okay. So Doc, have you done any of the DNS stuff? I have not, but Emily treats me all the time, so I'm assuming that that's all part of it. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to, like, what I love about functional medicine is that it's like what Emily and I do in in practice with the musculoskeletal system. You guys are trying to dig to the most deepest cause of the problem, right? And if you do this, if you're trying to establish the the deepest cause to a musculoskeletal problem, you are on a one-way train to neurology. And the deeper that you dig, the more into the brain you get. And one of the areas that you will stop at is this developmental neurology that the DNS and uh, the Voita Institute cover. And that is that when we're born, we're not developed. The skeletal system, the muscular system, the nervous system is underdeveloped. And it's going to take another, you know, two, three, five years to actually develop these systems. And that process, if it does not go to completion, it's going to manifest itself in movement dysfunction. The easiest example is what I used before, which was a winging scapula. You know, so if you want, you know, if you see somebody with like an open back shirt or whatever, or in a bathing suit, you can see the winging scapula. That is not a, a, a structural, muscular, mechanical weakness in that muscle. That is that the brain is not using that muscle in posture and function. So it is from really the subcortex and the cortex down. So when that patient or that athlete or that normal person is standing there or they're moving to grab a cup of coffee or whatever, the brain is not choosing to use that. And that happens early in development because that's when the brain learns to move. And this is where I think DNS gets a lot of pushback is that we don't have a double-blinded crossover study to prove that these movement patterns are inborn and they are activated through development, right? That's like the, that's the jump that if you really want to buy into DNS, you have to be willing to take. And some people, you know, I think are even crippled by being, you know, evidence-based, like they have to have 25 studies that, that prove something as opposed to just, you know, reasoning through it. And does this explain the phenomena that you're seeing in the clinic? So if you can make that jump, the jump is this, and that is that these patterns are inborn. And as you go through development, we improve the uh, afferent stimulation from different parts of the body, the back, the hips, the feet, the hands, everything. And that information basically triggers the brain to activate then muscles in that area. 
So the the sensory system, like literally like the the light touching your skin, your Gnostic function of your back will change the neurology of how your brain interprets and controls that area. And if you do not go through development correctly, then you might not activate the muscles that you need to function on a super high level. Once you get past, I don't know the exact date, but I'd like to say three or four years, if you still have a winging scapula, you will probably fight scapular instability much of your life, if not for the rest of your life. So that's what I mean by when it becomes pathological, because the the postural stabilization patterns or the neurology of, of movement is going to be set uh, relatively early in life. And then from there, we're just trying to change it a little bit. I do, I do feel like there's some neuroplasticity there, but a lot of it is pretty going to be pretty hardwired after that point. So how do you find the balance? So for example, for me, right? So Emily treats me, treats a ton of people and there's so much core instability and core postural patterning that obviously happened in, during development. How do you then get the lifting stimulus or the training stimulus? with these kind of core instabilities like where's the balance between the two that's like kind of you know one of my my passions is really the difference between rehab and performance and the the weightlifting class that that i came up with was to really help people do exactly what you're asking because with dns a lot of times you're you're training the athlete or the, the the patient in such a low stress environment in terms of like the forces and the speeds and all that kind of stuff so that the brain has a chance to improve the quality of the pattern. Once you've improved that, then from there we need to do two things, right? So let's just say, let's just keep it simple. Let's just say that we're talking about your, your core strength you mentioned. If we like immediately, like I had, I, I have this all the time. They'll say, oh, well, you don't need to do core work. You just need to squat. Okay. Well, when I put a bar on my back, the strategy that my brain chooses to use is going to have a profound effect on my function. And with DNS, what we're doing is we're assessing that exact pattern. We are seeing what, when you say brace, right? Or when you are doing something else, when your cortex is focused on something else, like picking up a barbell, running across the street, subcortically, subconsciously, what is the pattern your brain is using to stabilize? That is usually where the dysfunction lies. And to the best of my knowledge, DNS is the only system that goes after that. So to answer your question, what we would do is first, we would use exercise. You can use traditional DNS exercises, or you can use DNS principles applied to your normal system. And you try to improve the quality of your stability. Let's say we're trying to get you to expand into your posterior abdominal wall or feel you know, the lower abdominal wall activate or the pelvic floor, whatever the case is. You do that in, a, in a, an environment where you actually can have some success. Your brain becomes aware of that, and then it starts to gain better control over it. Okay, this kind of goes to like the unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent, and then consciously competent, and then finally unconsciously competent. You're going through that sort of motor learning process. Once you acquire that movement pattern and that control and that awareness, then we have to do two things. We have to now integrate that pattern into the movements that are important to you, either everyday life movements or sports movements, be it snatching a barbell, throwing a baseball, 
hitting a golf ball, whatever the case is, you have to now take those traditional DNS positions and now put that patient or that athlete in a, in a position that gives them a fighting chance to now apply that new pattern to their sport. Okay. That's an integration exercise. An example might be we're working on your core strength and you're in what we call three month position. You're laying on your back in triple flexion with your, your knees up, right? And your shins parallel to the ground. We're working on that. Once you have that down, then I'm going to, I need to get you into a position where you can now stabilize it well for like a kettlebell swing. So now maybe I get you into an isometric uh, hold with a really heavy kettlebell so that you can kind of push against it at your own resistance and then learn to stabilize against a little bit more load in a position that is very similar to a swing. Now, once you do that, your brain goes, oh, okay, that's how I use that pattern in this position. And so now when you go to a swing, it might be able to do that. Okay. So that's an integration phase. And then once you've integrated it, we have to now strengthen that pattern. So that was very simple. We can we can strengthen that pattern by increasing the load, either making you move faster, making you move more weight, or making you move for a longer period of time. And that goes into your assessment, like where do you think their problem is? So you would initially, they would acquire the skill, and then you would apply or integrate the skill, and then you would strengthen the skill. So I think one of the questions is, especially being Gabrielle's doctor, <laughs> So someone who used to do how many pull-ups a day? 10 sets of 10. 10 sets of 10 what? Pull-ups. Nice. Would do, I'd be basically trained until she tore hamstring 80% off the ish too. So, you know, giving someone breathing exercises, stability exercises, strength, building up slowly so that there's not re-injury. And I think this is where the concept of functional capacity comes in is... Yeah. Here's a person, a woman who wants to get that metabolic conditioning, wants to break a sweat, wants to get exercise, wants to feel that she got a workout, yet is, you know, we're training her and building her strength up slowly to prevent re-injury. So I'm curious your thoughts on this, because her and I talk about this like twice a week, every week. <laughs> because individuals want to train, right? So you want to train, but obviously... I've trained so much that I've hurt myself or trained poorly, but there is this wanting to get the stimulus. Well, of course, wanting to do the rehab. And, and how do you make that happen? Just for the listeners that haven't heard, the functional capacity is essentially the range within which you can move properly. And that's defined as DNS does, right? So when we talk about functional centration and proper muscle balance and or muscle synergy or co-activation of all the muscles around the joints, you know, when you're moving well, then you are moving efficiently. And remember that there's a difference between efficiency and effectiveness. Effectiveness is all about output. It has no factor for input. Efficiency is the ratio between input and output. But for long-term sustainability or athletic resilience, right, or athletic sustainability, you know, everyone's kind of talking about, that is all about improving the efficiency of movement, which means the internal muscular effort, the input necessary to execute a movement is less. And the less internal effort you're applying, the less load is going through those tissues, be it a labrum, a hamstring, 
um, initial tuberosity. Whatever the case is, if you improve the efficiency of the movement, you decrease the load on the body substantially. It is a difficult jump for athletes that are used to just going balls out as hard as they can every time they go to the gym to having to do some workouts or some portions of their workout where they have to kind of back off and focus on the patterns and the feelings, right? And so with you, let's say that, you know, I don't know if you're a runner or a crossfitter or whatever, but if you're injured, it's easy, right? You just have to back off and do this. No problem. You know, where it becomes a little bit more complex is when you have a healthy athlete and you do this. So for instance, I'm lucky enough to work with a guy named Joe Kovacs, who's the ninth farthest thrower in world history as a silver medalist in the shot put in Rio. And I love sort of paying it forward because I was an athlete one day, a, a wannabe Olympic athlete. And I had people that helped me out a ton. So Joe is somebody that I work with. Well, Joe's not injured. I'm not technically his coach. And because I want to make sure that he has full trust in his coach, I don't want to cross that line and try to say, oh, well, I think you should do this. And, you know, so-and-so saying that I don't agree with that. That just screws it for the athlete. So there's things that I have to do with him where I can now, oh, okay, well, why don't you try doing some of these things and give him a couple like movement workouts that he'll do that aren't going to really compromise his, his volume or load his volume down as much. But I have to convince him and explain to him, this is why you need to do this. Because to a, a hardcore athlete that is not injured and is not experiencing pain with something, it does not make sense why an athlete that Joe can squat 920 pounds. Well, it doesn't make sense to an average athlete. Like, well, what do you mean my core's not working right? Or what do you mean? Why am I doing this? Hold my legs up. I can squat 900 pounds. I've got a super strong core. And so you have to explain that quite a bit and go through so that they buy into it, so that they understand why. And then you you have the athlete in the, in the healthy case, you just have them doing a couple times a week, they're doing some movement stuff, or they can have a warm up or a cool down, or maybe one day a week, they're doing just like a, a quality of movement thing. If you're an injured athlete, then of course, they have to back off and really train that. And that's easy buy in there, right? I mean, if you can't run, then it's not like you're going to go out and try to be, you know, crushing 50 miles a week. So that's easy. But with the, the healthy athletes that want to do that, or maybe the ones like you that have had a chronic injury for a long time, you're going to need to find time every week to start adding in some of this functional capacity stuff. And what that involves is you trying to find that threshold where you go from moving well to, to, to losing it into these, these common patterns that we see with the core the common pattern is what I, I call an extension compression stabilizing strategy, which is a mouthful, but it explains what it is. And that is when you're using your spinal extensors to substitute coactivation of all the muscles of the trunk, right? So your, your erector spining, your hip flexors become super, super tight. They extend and compress the spine and you lose that position. So that's when the pelvis cranks forwards, the ribs go up. And now we know that that athlete is no longer moving efficiently. And they've collapsed into perhaps a more effective pattern, but one that will chew up their tissues. So when if you're doing core stuff, whether it's a plank or squatting or RDLs or deadlifts or whatever you want, you find that load, which might be weight, it might be duration, like how long you're holding it, or it might be how fast you're having to move. 
when you find that variable, that level where you cannot keep the ribs down, you cannot keep the abdominal wall expanded, you need to stay there or even drop off a little bit and learn to own and control your movement patterns at that particular range. And as you continue to do that, you improve your brain's ability to maintain proper movement patterns in your sport at loads that are close to what you experience in your sport. So for someone like Gabrielle, who still wants to, like, yes, she wants to strength train, buy into the rehab exercises against her will, (laughs) but she still wants to train the tissue. So for example, she's like, can I go swimming? Can I get on the airdyne bike? She wants that metabolic component. What do you tell that person? So, I mean, if they're injured, obviously I try to like, you know, have a no pain tolerance for tra- for training if they're injured. I think it's important to modify before you just sort of remove from their training. Like I almost never tell an athlete, you can't exercise. <laughs> you know, the it, it, like for me, when I was an athlete, if I went into, you know, a doctor's office and they said, oh yeah, you need to take three weeks off. I'd be like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks. See ya. Mm-hmm. Never again am I talking to you. <laughs> Just they don't. They don't want to. And so, in in your case, Gabrielle, I might try to find alternative exercise. Like I, I program for for patients and athletes all the time, because like in CrossFit, for instance, it might be frustrating if they have a knee injury and they're going to the gym, and maybe the the coaches aren't that fantastic at modifying. So I might write them a bunch of workouts where they can actually be addressing that and still getting that metabolic training, and still getting their crack, so to speak, but in a way that's not regressing their, their progress. Right. So, I mean, specifically yours is a hamstring issue and you want to be running or what do you want to be doing? Ham, two yeah, hamstrings, like, um, uh, two double shoulders. hamstrings <laughs> guarantee her back is cranked on. So for you, if you want to go out and do like some crazy CrossFit workout, you're going to just keep cranking your back on. So you might need to back off a, a decent amount I mean, in your case, I would start training you as far out of the sagittal plane as possible. So that extension compression stabilizing strategy becomes more pronounced the more you lock the the patient or the athlete in the sagittal plane. We see it in powerlifters, crossfitters, and Olympic weightlifters a lot, very pronounced. You do not see it so much in tennis players and golfers because they're so far out of the sagittal plane. So for you, Gabrielle, I might write a program that actually integrates exercises that has rotation and lateral flexion and all these other things so that you're not cranking your spinal extensors on as much and producing that overactivity in the hamstrings. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. I know somebody who's going to help me with that, (laughs) Emily. There's a lot of fitness fads in New York, a lot of bar classes, Tracy Anderson, that are driving into that extension compression strategy as a workout. And I see a lot of females that do that. And I'm encouraging them to pick up heavy weights to go through like, you know, squat, deadlift, lunge, carry, push, pull. And it is really hard to tell that population to not go into that workout. Is there something on a neurological level? I was like, oh, you know, I remember from the courses as a baby, Babies who don't develop well tend to default into that extension strategy. Is that correct? Where I came up with that 
observation was when I was, I had to do a presentation to, <laughs> to the whole Prague Institute, the Prague school on weightlifting, because my beef was that what we were doing is we're, we're teaching this great stuff. And then when, when people leave, they're thinking that, well, even an elite athlete, like take Joe Kovacs, like a guy that squats 900 pounds, like we can't make his coach or his therapist believe that all they need is a three month position and a yellow TheraBand. And that's somehow going to improve Joe. So I was like, we need to be doing something to train these people better or to, to enable the, the coaches and the therapists to train these athletes better and apply the DNS principles. This is really where the, the DNS weightlifting course was born. So I was trying to go through and, and figure this out and, and think of all these things. And in looking at videos and pictures and, and thinking about athletes, I realized that whether it's a plank, a push-up, a three-month position, a pull-up, overhead pressing, it really doesn't matter when you challenge the nervous system to a certain point, when you exceed a certain threshold, they're going to resort into a more primitive stabilizing strategy. I mean, the polyvagal theory is actually a very, very similar example. Or even the brain, if you think about it, like the prefrontal cortex is, is, is inhibiting a lot of our limbic desires. And when you get tired, stressed, you know, you're not eating, then you will become more limbic, right? The more primitive part of the brain is going to take precedence. The same thing happens in the body. We have these, what Yonda classified as tonic muscles, that tonic muscles tend to become overactive and tight over time. But we now know because of collage and Voita that tonic muscles tend to be the muscles that are activated very early in development, even active when we're born. And the phasic muscles, these are muscles that become active during development, like the serratus anterior, like the abdominal wall, like the longus coli, like the glutes. These muscles tend to be much more neurologically fragile. So when you stress and strain them, they're going to collapse and you become or you, you collapse into a, a tonic-driven posture, or it, like a, the tonic muscles are kind of like the limbic muscles. So th that's trying to explain to the therapists, you know, what is going on here is where I came to that realization. And then when I was noticing that, I said, okay, well, what are the things that can cause it? Because obviously load is one, but then I realized that sometimes you can just have a 28-kilogram a kettlebell and you're just doing swings that's not a very heavy kettlebell for for most athletes but if you have them swing it 20 30 40 50 times they're going to collapse and regress into the same pattern the other one is this is speed if you ask someone to move very very quickly that requires a lot of neurology and a lot of reaction and most of the time you're going to find a threshold in an athlete where they cannot maintain co-activation of the tonic and phasic muscles. So that observation came in just trying to explain in a very clear way what is going on, like what is the gap, right? Because it's not what happens a lot of times, and I'm sure you've seen this, Emily, is you have an athlete that on the table can just crush a three-month position. It looks amazing. They can expand in all quadrants, and it just looks like that's a perfect example of that exercise. And then they stand up and you go to over to a barbell and their spinal extensors crank on. And you're like, what just happened? You were literally just doing this perfectly. And so 
the the functional capacity thing, and then also the exercise categorizations with the skill application and skill acquisition and then skill strengthening exercises. Those were the two ways that I explain how do we bridge this gap between this such powerful approach that is DNS and the performance industry. Because I think that was missing before. What are some of your favorite cues from DNS that carry over into working with performance athletes that are lifting? Push my hands apart is a big one, right? So a lot of times when you're trying to get someone's abdominal wall to fire correctly, I will take my hands and sort of like push a knife edge as an old chiropractic term for you, knife edge contact on the abdominal wall. I'll push my hands together and then I'll have them push my hands apart with their abdomen because there's no way to do that without activation of the diaphragm. That's the only muscle in the body that can push the abdominal wall out. And so I will have them do that. And that's a pretty good one. I tend to use a lot of like physical contact on the athletes. I know that we get, you know, I don't know, once a month, there's some Facebook feud over like, what's a better internal or external cueing? What's better? Research says this. Well, I think that both can be great and every athlete is slightly different. But at the end of the day, whether the athlete is kinesthetic or visual, they still have to have control and feeling over their body. It cannot be only visual. And so whether the athlete is visual or kinesthetic, I'm constantly trying to improve their kinesthetic awareness, right? I'm trying to improve their sensory motor integration. I'm improving the quality and the quantity of the afferents going to the brain so that they can control that area better. And so I'm maybe poking just lateral to the erector spinae, having them sort of push against it there. I'm trying to think other good cues. I mean, it changes so much, but that's probably like the best one that I've, that I've got just as a general cue for whomever. Yeah, that's great. I love that. You have a company called Athlete Enhancements. Would that be accurate? The company? Uh, You can put that in air quotes again, if you want. The company, the entity sort of uh, was, was created as I started speaking more nationally and internationally that I just didn't need to sort of have people going to my chiropractic company's page. And so I have that there. And that's now becoming a little bit more of an outlet for me to start putting things that have been coming you know, up in my, my universe in the strength training world or the medical world. And so when I, when I get time, I put up an article or videos or, or whatever. And that's kind of that outlet for that. And who's, who's the target for that? Athletes, crossfitters, people who live? I mean, really, it can be athletes and then also therapists. I think that, you know, the, the internet is, is just flooded the, the universe with lots of information. So if an athlete is just really interested in digging to the bottom, like in understanding the cause of things, that's sort of my passion. I'm not interested in, in simplifying something and then just giving somebody like, you know, oh, just, just think of it like this. I really want to know the mechanics and the neurology and the anatomy behind things. And so I, I guess it would be for anyone, coach or athlete or therapist that is interested in really understanding how the body moves and stabilizes and, and, and things that, you know, they can do to Im- improve the way they do those things. Are you writing an article on squatting right now? You want to give us like a little taste of... 
what's the question? Sure. I've got a little article that'll come out, but it's it's converted into a presentation that I'll be doing at the Perform Better Summit in Providence, Rhode Island. And it's really on the idea that, that squatting, while very powerful and sexy and fun, is really overutilized. And I think its efficacy is massively overrated. And we, we end up defaulting to that exercise for a couple reasons you know number one squatting is like lifting heavy shit is cool and that's just attractive on a lot of levels Uh, number two that's kind of how we learn to do it right like your our coaches tended at least certainly in my sport throwing and olympic weightlifting you squat often right and so that's kind of what what i was told and then the other one is that everybody does it it's ubiquitous in strength training. And I, I think that that sort of has everyone default into this pattern where, well, I'm just going to squat. When in reality, it's not very functional. It's not very sport specific. It produces um, functional asymmetries. It produces functional blocks. It beats the athletes up. And it comes with a higher risk of injury than other exercises. So, I love the squat. I've been studying it borderline obsessively for uh, more than 20 years now, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be this king exercise that almost every athlete should be using. And I think in a lot of strength paradigms, it is. They look at it like, well, that's that's the king exercise. You got to squat, right? So that's kind of what the, the article is about. That's what the, the presentation will be about as well. But we just need to really make sure that we understand why we're doing the squat. And if we do, then it it might be perfectly reasonable in different scenarios. Is there anything we have not talked about that you really want to talk about? What's just currently on my brain is probably that. We didn't get to talk about food or wine, so I don't know. (laughs) Well, I'm on very restricted uh, protocol, according to my functional medicine doctor, because I have a high histamine response to high histamine foods. Which basically oh, means <laughs> not yeah. a lot of fun. <laughs> well, I mean, no, like what it means, and you can tell your functional medicine doctor that I said this, it means that you can only drink really good, like really, really good wine. So if you have first runoff wine. She actually is a super hard case. I had to run her, I had to run her DNA through Opus 23. That's how tough this woman was. Nice. But she's so amazing though. No, I, th- I found this really interesting, Doc. I was in Napa with a really bright physician friend of mine, and we're, you know, the, obviously the headaches thing comes up, right? And he'll say like, "Oh yeah," somebody said, "Oh, it's the sulfates," and he goes, "No, it's not the sulfates." He goes, "You you can get headaches from wine that has sulfates and wine that doesn't have sulfates." He goes, "What it is is it's the quality of the wine, and so when you go through, and if you get that first runoff." right? And it's just the, the weight of the grapes runoff. That has very little histamines in it because you haven't crushed the grapes yet. When you start to crush them, you break the skins and you start releasing the histamines and those go into the wine. So the cheaper the wine, theoretically, the more histamines are in it. And then that might produce more of a reaction. So Emily, you just need to be drinking very, very nice one. Like stick to nickel and nickel, you know, or B sellers, like just really good stuff. And I think you'll probably be fine. (laughs) Richard, thank you so much for your time. It's been enlightening. I love it. I always like every time there's an opportunity to get to Columbus for a course, I always show up. It's like crazy, right? You're like, you again, you're here. (laughs) 
No, it's fun. We do have the Shacklock course. I don't know if you ever had him. No, I haven't. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it. I've never met him personally. I've just heard really, really good things about it. So that'll be cool. And then we have the Dan John course. It'll be sort of fun. If you've never seen him, he's just kind of a captivating guy. I just try to have fun courses. It's, it's just fun to kind of learn from smarter people. Well, thank you so much for your time. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here. 